85th Psalm. Uh, You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text, the 85th Psalm, is on the back of the notes. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading Psalm 85, then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. Psalm 85. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Salah. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. O Lord God, As we study this psalm, we are reminded of the goodness of your salvation, your forgiveness of us, and we are also reminded that we need to be revived. We need, continue to need forgiveness, restoration, grace, and we look and look to the day when um, this world, this earth, and heaven will be in concord and unity, and we look to that with great hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 85 um, is one of the most picturesque and beautiful psalms in the Psalter. In fact, I I think um, verse 10 and 11 in particular, which our last song um, was based part of this lyric off of, is some of the most poetic and beautiful pictures of God's salvation. And yet... One of the reasons why I love going through the psalms in their entirety is if you were going to write a modern worship song, you'd center on verses 10 and 11. You'd grab them and you'd, you'd make that the chorus. And yet this celebration of God's salvation and his goodness comes in this context of people crying out for forgiveness, crying out for salvation and restoration, abiding under God's anger and indignation. And so I'm constantly amazed at the various um, contexts the psalms give us. In over 150 psalms, most of them in the book of psalms, but others scattered throughout the rest of the Bible, God has given us paths, songs to sing to him in the various situations of life. And here is a song for people who have experienced God's past deliverance and salvation and yet currently are crying out for it again. That's the emphasis. You see it in verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. 
And so I find great comfort in this psalm. You can be saved, you can be delivered, you can be restored and need restoration. You can have experienced God's forgiveness, the covering of your sin, the withdrawal of his wrath, and yet still cry out, oh God, will you be angry? We'll, we'll deal with this as we go through, but this is for a people who have experienced salvation and need further restoration. This can deal with the discouragement that comes. Maybe God did mighty deeds back earlier in your life when you first came to faith, when he first saved you, when he first delivered you. And now you feel like his displeasure is on you. And you cry out again. Here, here is a pattern, a model to cry out again. And it's from that vantage point looking up that these glories of salvation are seen and delighted in. So we're going to move through this in, in three points. I wrestled between a three-point or a four-point outline you really could make verses 8 and 9 its own point, but I grouped it in the last third one. I was just going to be grouping it around past, present, future. Past, forgiveness and restoration. Present, questions and petitions. Future, grace and faithfulness. I think you can look at the psalm in those three categories. And so when you are discouraged, when you are weary, when you are crying out for help, it is instructive for us, and this psalm instructs us, to first look back to God's past forgiveness and restoration, even as in doing so, to some degree, will heighten the contrast. I mean, this sets up the petitions and cry of verse 4, because things are not now like they were. But let us nevertheless look back to God's past forgiveness and restoration. And verses 1 through 3 make this clear. The Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins, Salah. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And so we see first that the Lord was in the past favorable to his people. And that word in verse 1 for restored is a key word in this psalm. It's a very flexible Hebrew term. Let me read what my old Hebrew professor has to say about it for restored. In the first eight verses of the psalm, the Hebrew root, shuv, is a key word. Its versatility appears in its various translations, given as restored or restore in verses 1 and 4, but turned away and turned back in verses 3 and 8. So in verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. That's the same word, turn. Verse 8, but let them not turn back to folly. It's also rendered again in verse 6. Will you not revive us again? It's a picture of a returning. It can be returning to something good or returning to something bad. It's, it's the word used in Genesis three nineteen: From earth you come and to earth you will return. And so the context will determine what type of returning or what type of turning has in view. O oh Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And this is going to be the first cry that comes out. As they're looking back at God's previous restoration. It's going to set up the cry of verse 4 and verse 6. And so there's many ways in which we can look at God's restoration. I was talking to Pastor Daniel this morning. I was going to suggest two to you, and he gave me a third. Um, it's possible, in fact, your next point here, after he restored the fortunes of Jacob, likely, uh, maybe I'll weaken that to a possible after my palaver with Pastor Daniel, um, 
It's likely or possible a reference to the return from Babylon. If you have the New American Standard or the New King James, uh, your verse 1 will be, you restored the captivity of Jacob. And it's a Hebrewism. You, were, you turned the turning of Jacob. And, and some of the translators took that to be a reference to the captivity. Um, this would be a great fit for a psalm in that period after the return from Babylon. We, we read about Nehemiah and Ezra where initially they're excited, they start building the temple, and then it just slows down and comes to a halt. That, that would be a great type of example of the Lord delivering, the Lord restoring, and then, but things seem to have come to an end. Another example you can grab for the other end of Israel's history. If you think of the people of Israel at Sinai, the Lord has powerfully and miraculously delivered them from Egypt through signs and wonders and powerful acts. And yet they get to Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain and what do the people do? They eat and play and they say to Aaron, make for us gods to worship as from this man Moses. We don't know what's become of him. And in Exodus 32 and 33 and 34, the Lord is about to wipe them out in his displeasure. They've, they've experienced a deliverance and salvation and yet they very much stand in need of forgiveness and restoration. Or, as the youth are going through, and Pastor Daniel reminds me, the book of Judges is, is this constant um, pattern of, of the people crying out to God, help us, and God delivering them, and God restoring them, and God raising up a champion, a judge to deliver them from the Philistines. And then the people begin to drift away again, and God's anger comes upon them, and he gives them over to their enemies, and they cry out, help! And you get this pattern over and over in Judges. And so this is a common enough pattern for God's people. We don't know exactly the context of this psalm, but I think all of those would be good fits, the types of scenarios where something like this would be wholly appropriate. A people who have experienced, who can look back to God's salvation in the past, God's favor in the past, God's forgiveness in the past, and yet right now need more of it. So he restored the fortunes of Jacob, likely a reference to, to the return from Babylon, not necessarily. And in specific, what we're looking at is, is salvation of a spiritual and moral sense. The land is going to figure heavily in this psalm, but as we extol what God has done in the past, you forgave the iniquity of your people. That's the sense in which God in the past was favorable. That's the sense in which he restored them. He forgave their iniquity. He covered all their sins. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. He forgave their iniquity and covered their sin. That, that pairing reminds us even back to the psalm we studied a few weeks ago, Psalm 32. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That word, by the way, for restored, at least in Hebrew, forms a, a bracketing, an inclusio of the first section Verse 1, you restored the fortunes. Verse 3, you withdrew your wrath and you turned. Same word from your hot anger. Book ending, the first three verses. He forgave their iniquity and covered their sin. He withdrew his wrath and anger. So the people were sinful, whether we're looking at the worship of the golden calf, whether we're looking at their failure to build the temple as they build their homes instead, whether we're looking at the repeated patterns of forsaking God in the book of Judges, or any of the times in God's people's history, we have a people who in the past have experienced God's forgiveness, in the past have experienced his salvation, and now again cry out for it. And this is a point where we want to be careful 
we get very uncomfortable talking about God's wrath. It's not very popular in our culture today. And we like to talk about the things that show up in verse 10 and 11. As I suggested, if we were going to write a modern worship song, we'd probably focus on verses 10 and 11. I would suggest to you that we can only get to the glories of verses 10 and 11 if we take a serious and real look at God's anger. This psalm celebrates God's forgiveness and his grace precisely because of how much we deserve his wrath. The remedy, the salvation that we need and require will be proportional to our guilt and our sin. And to try to minimize and downplay guilt and God's anger because we're somehow embarrassed of the biblical depiction of a God who is angry at sin, who hates evildoers. That's, that's the language of the Psalms. We will necessarily remove and diminish the greatness of his salvation. Now, this psalm deals very honestly with God's anger. It's also popular for us to say nowadays that once you become a Christian, once you become saved, then God's never displeased or angry with you again. He just sees you dressed in Christ. And there's truth to that in an eschatological sense. You move from the anger of a judge who will judge the living and the dead, cosmically dealing with treason, to a father who, even as you are members of his household, you can experience his displeasure. And we've seen in the Psalms, David, a forgiven man, cry out, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And as our heavenly father, our father disciplines us as his sons and daughters. And within his family, with, with no threat of being cast out of his family, we can experience his fatherly displeasure. That's the whole position of this psalm. You have forgiven us. You have delivered us. Would you restore us again? Would you put away your indignation towards us? Will you be angry with us forever? all while celebrating the past deliverance and salvation. And so we, we need to deal honestly and seriously with our sin and with God's very real fatherly, if you're a Christian, displeasure at it. Jude reminds us, exhorts us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, if you are a Christian, God's love for you in the sense of his commitment to your final glorification, your final cleansing, your finally being brought to him will never wax or wane. His commitment to that is fixed. And yet your day-to-day -day life, his pleasure for you and for me can wax and wane proportional to our faithfulness or faithlessness. And so we get songs like this that look back to the past forgiveness and restoration, back to God's past forgiveness, which then brings us to the present questions and petitions. It's precisely because looking back at God's past saving acts, his past forgiveness, that makes the present situation so difficult. And so it opens with a petition. What you get is a sandwich where petitions are the bread on the outside of the sandwich and the questions, the rhetorical questions of five and six are the center. So you get restore us again, O God of our salvation, petition, and put away your indignation towards us. Then you get the first question, will you be angry forever? Second, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Six, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So three questions, and then petition again. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And you note the salvation, again, sandwiches, brackets, in inclusio, this section of the text, giving us again a central theme. A saved people are crying out for salvation. 
a restored people are crying out for restoration. A forgiven people are crying out for forgiveness as they ask God to remove his anger and wrath. These are all valid things, assuming we mean the right things by them, for us to cry out. Our Lord taught us to pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. And so here is a song for redeemed people crying out for redemption, for forgiven people crying out for forgiveness, for restored people crying out for restoration. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and withdraw your anger. That's the petition of this song. Restore us again, withdraw your anger again. That's that's the cry. And again, we're not going to cry that if we've deluded ourselves into thinking that because I'm a Christian, because I'm saved, I never have to ask this again. Well, this psalm begs to differ. As God's child in Christ by faith, he can have fatherly displeasure towards you. And you can need to cry out for his restoration, his forgiveness, his strengthening again and again and again. And that's what this psalm leads us to do. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Now, these rhetorical questions are framed in such a way that the answers are assumed. Verse 5's rhetorical question emphasizes an understood negative answer. Of course not. Verse 6 questions emphasizes an understood positive answer. Yes, of course you will revive us again. So the questions, will you be angry with us forever? And will you not, and the New American Standard gets the emphatic nature of this, will you not yourself revive us again that we may rejoice in you? And then it ends with further petitions. Show us your steadfast love and your salvation. Now, he's already shown it to them. That's what they confess in the first three verses. And they, they need to see it again. They, they need to experience it again. And, and by giving this psalm to Israel and ultimately the church receiving this psalm, because all scripture is written down for our sake, we are given this song. And we, even as we have experienced his steadfast love, and even as we have experienced his salvation, can rightly cry out, show us again your steadfast love and grant to us your salvation. That word for steadfast love, which we'll look at again in verse 10, is again God's covenant love, his gospel love. This is the love God only ever expresses in relationship to his redeemed people, his chesed his loyal love, his saving love, his covenant love. and th- These people are crying out, we, we need it again. We need to see it again. We, we have, by virtue of our faithlessness, by virtue of our drifting, we have incurred your displeasure and your discipline. And we know, there's a confidence here, we know that that won't be the end of the story, but oh, would you put it away and revive and restore us again? That's a present request and petition, um, which brings us then to future grace and faithfulness. Future grace and faithfulness. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. We'll pause there. So just to rehearse where we've been. 
Um, to deal with the discouragement of, of being in a place where you feel like God is, is displeased with you. He, he has redeemed you. He has acted in the past, but right now you need his restoration. This psalm directs us first to look back and celebrate his past actions. Even in so doing, you will heighten that contrast, but that's good. Do it anyway. Look at what God has done to you and then pour out your heart to him. Lord, restore us again. Revive us again. Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. But now this third step is equally crucial. Listen to what the Lord God will speak. This is, by the way, the only point in the psalm that shifts back to the singular. Up until this, it's been a corporate psalm. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes. You forgave the iniquity of your people. Look at verse 4. Restore us, plural. Again, there's a corporate outcry, right? Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Verse 8, let me. It's individual. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So you've looked back at God's past salvation. You've looked back at the things he's done. You've poured out your heart now, crying for restoration. Now you've got to listen to what God says. Now here's where we need to be precise this is where if we take the, the sort of mystical notions of the day in, you might think this means now just sit and wait around till you have feelings and hear some inner voice. When the Bible talks about what God the Lord will speak, it, it's always referring to verbal revelation. Um, Habakkuk says something very similar when he lays out his complaint to God. I will hear, I'll put my hand over my mouth, I'll wait and hear what the Lord God will speak. And God comes back and speaks in words. If this is referring to uh, Moses going up on the mountain pleading for Israel, God speaks to him verbally. If this is referring to the return from the captivity, God sends prophets who speak to them verbally. Zechariah and Haggai. It always and ever means, let us hear what God says in his word. His word written or his word through a prophet. It never means sit and listen to your feelings. So you've, you've looked back at God's past salvation. You've poured out your present requests and petitions. And now listen to what God the Lord will speak. And it's important that when we come to his word and we listen to him, we listen with the right attitude. That we listen in faith as his child and confident in his character. You see that in verse 8 and 9. Let me hear what God will, the Lord will speak. And then here's that confidence, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. So this, this person, this individual is coming, not as a stranger to God, but as one of his saints, one of his set-apart ones. And he comes confident that God will speak good things in peace. In other words, he comes believing. He comes already as a saint. He comes already as a believer, a forgiven one, a saint, and he comes expectant good things from God. So we need to stop and listen to what God has said. And when we listen, we need to remember he, he speaks good things. And we need to come as his children. What that means is if you have not experienced God's initial salvation, if you are outside of Christ, then the message for you is simply repent and believe. Turn to Christ. Place your faith on him. Experience God's salvation and forgiveness. If you are already part of that redeemed community, if you can look back in the first three verses to God's past salvation, now listen to his word and listen. Come as his child. Come as one of his saints. Um, 
and, and listen expectantly. Um, that word for saints is, is where the Hasidic Jews get their name from. He's loyal. Come as one of his loyal ones. Come as his child and come confident in his character. Psalm 50 verse 5 says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So, so it's a certain type of listening. It's a listening that understands who you are and who he is. I'm his child and he will speak good things. It's a confidence we can have even as his indignation is over us. So come in faith and also come in faithfulness. Come in faithfulness. As you listen to what the Lord, the God, the Lord will speak. Come in faithfulness. That, that word for turning or restore occurs negatively here. We want God to turn our fortunes. We want him to turn away his anger. He wants us to turn us again, to revive us again. The danger, though, let them not, verse 8, turn back to folly. The danger is we might turn. And so we, we, we listen to him in faith as his child, confident in his character, and we listen in faithfulness, not turning back to folly, but fearing him. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. In other words, they're coming repentantly. Whatever we've done, whatever the author has done, whatever the sons of Kor have done to, to invite God's indignation in verse 4 and his anger in verse 5, they're now no longer turned to folly. They're now coming in the fear of God. They're coming in faith and they're coming in faithfulness. And because they're coming in faith and they're becoming in faithfulness, they are confident, we are confident, God will speak peace. God will speak good things to his saints. His salvation is near. They've just cried out for his salvation in verse 7. And already, even before God speaks, there's a confidence that it is near to those who fear him. If you're God's child, if you can ever get back to the fear of the Lord, he has good things to say to you. If you can come to him not turning back to folly, he has peace to speak to you. So those are the steps. Looking back to God's past salvation, pouring out the heart for the current need of forgiveness and restoration, and then listening to what God says in his word in confident, loyal, faithful expectation, which then brings us to the the high point, the crescendo of this psalm, verses 10 through 13. Let's read them now. What will God say? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So in verses 8 through 9, we listen to what God the Lord will speak. In verses 10 through 13, we celebrate what God the Lord has spoken. And we get three um, couplets, which we see God will establish perfect harmony or concord. You could put in there as well. It's a little older word. And that's the emphasis of these three couplets. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. There's the first one. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Second one. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Third one. 
godless doubt. And it's a picture of harmony, harmonious state of affairs. In fact, let me read um, Derek Kidner says of this. The climax of this psalm is one of the most satisfying descriptions of concord, spiritual, moral, and material to be found anywhere in Scripture. So the context, the people have experienced salvation. They cry out for God to reveal his salvation again. And they get this promise, this confidence that God will establish a perfect harmony. First, we see between covenant love and faithfulness, between covenant love and faithfulness. There's that word chesed, steadfast love, and faithfulness will meet. Now, what's, what's this talking about? These couplets first show up. In fact, turn, turn back to Exodus 32. We'll take a look at that, and then we'll see if we might see where some of these things get fulfilled in the New Testament. Exodus 32, again, I suggested this is the type of scenario this psalm is written for. People have worshipped a calf. um, And Moses climbs up on the mountain and he intercedes for the people. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague. So Moses intercedes again. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore. But Moses cries out to the Lord. Look at verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, see that you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know where you will send me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He's interceding, first, that God won't kill them all, and God relents. And then he intercedes that God will not abandon them and that he will go up in their midst as they move to the promised land rather than simply sending his angel. And the Lord God relents again. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses, perhaps emboldened by God's graciousness and his faithfulness, then makes a third request in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And that's the context for the great revelation of God's character in Exodus 34. I've got to remind you that God has not had much to say about who he is thus far in the Bible. There's a certain revealing of his character to Abraham as Abraham is allowed to petition for Sodom and Gomorrah and he can 50 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. And and God is revealing his character. But really, the first time God even gives his covenant name is at the burning bush. Tell them that I am sent you. And so this is the next big step in that revelation. It's in the context of a people saved, delivered from Egypt, needing more salvation, more forgiveness, Moses cries out, forgive them, go with them, now show me your glory. And look at 34, verse 6. 
The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And our psalm says in verse 10, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Now that pairing, that's where it first shows up. Now it's interesting in Psalm 85 I believe the New American Standard translates faithfulness as truth. And you get the idea is that to be faithful, fide, reliable, dependable, veritas, it's the notion of truthfulness. Well, if you take it now, steadfast love and truth, and take steadfast love and you, well, what's God's steadfast love? It's his grace. Now you've got something awfully close to what John 1 14 says. And I, and I do think John 1 14 is linking back to Exodus 34. I'm not just trying to do clever word shiftings, but if the response to God's people crying out for further salvation and the revelation of God's salvation is steadfast love and faithfulness meet, I would suggest you they meet perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this psalm just tells us steadfast love, God's loyal covenant love and truth meet. And I think the New Testament develops that further. And we, this side of the cross, see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that Jesus reveals that very glory. What is God's glory, he says to Moses? I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John 1, what is the glory of the only begotten of the Father that they beheld full of grace and truth? The next harmony is between righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now this is another conundrum. And back in Exodus 34, I'll read a little further. Lord God tells Moses what his glory is, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, verse 6, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? And if I were Moses, I would say, what? God says, I'll tell you my glory, Moses. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but I do not let guilty people go free. What? I I thought you forgive. How does that work? How, for our purposes in Psalm 85, how can, from our context, and something that we can celebrate, righteousness and peace kiss each other? As, as Paul Washer has said, the worst news we can hear is that God is righteous and good. Because if we're sinful and God is good, what must he do to sinful man? If God's righteousness is his right doing, his always doing what is right and good and proper, then how is this good news? Isn't the very fact that he's indignant and angry, isn't that the very thing that is right and fitting. They're crying out in verse 4 and 5, will you be angry forever? And you can imagine the response, well, that's fitting and right for me to be angry. You deserve it. But righteousness and peace are going to kiss. How can God's righteousness and peace be united without us being completely done away with? And again, this this psalm doesn't tell us how, but I think this side of the cross in the New Testament, we know how. 
Uh, if you turn, you don't need to turn, I'll read it to you. Romans 3. Uh, the, the, the conundrum of the cross, the heart of the gospel, is that God is determined to be both righteous and just and forgiving. He's going to resolve that tension in Exodus 34. I am abounding in steadfast love. I forgive thousands, generation upon generation. I don't let guilty people go free. How does that resolve itself? In in Romans chapter 3, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23, and are justified, pronounced innocent by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I'll pause it's through that forgiveness that we get peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. So that's the connection in my mind between being justified, being forgiven, and having peace. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His forbearance, He had passed over former sins. We get so hung up on the problem of evil and we've got it entirely upside down. We want to know why does God let bad things happen to really nice people? That has only ever happened once and he volunteered. Understand that. God has only once let something bad happen to a good person and he volunteered. For every one of us other than the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, we get far less than we deserve. And so Paul, the problem of evil is not, how can this good God let bad things happen? Rather, the problem is, how can this good and righteous God not destroy and damn every one of us? How can he overlook former sins? The answer is, because he knew there was a day appointed when he would judge sin on the cross on Jesus Christ's body. That's the answer. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness God had to publicly put Jesus forward to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had formerly passed over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is perfectly righteous and we have peace. I know I'm going beyond what the Psalms initial authors would have had in their minds, but I think this is how we see these things come together. They're looking ahead. God's will do these things. And we, the other side of the cross, look back. God has done this. Righteousness and peace have kissed. On the cross, we see the perfect expression of God's wrath and just anger at sin. And we see the perfect expression of God's love and kindness. Righteousness and peace kiss. And then the third couplet in Psalm 85. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. And we see perfect harmony between heaven and earth. Now, the land and the earth has been in this psalm pretty continually. And of course, in the Hebrew thinking, God's promises of salvation were always linked and and, and bled over into promises of restoration in the land. And we can get so excited and celebrate so greatly God's saving acts of forgiveness of sin and adoption, and we should celebrate those. We can't make them too wonderful. We can't make too much of them, but we can tend to forget the, the other aspects, which the, the Jews never would have. 
So here there's also a confidence that not only will faithfulness and steadfast love meet, that righteousness and peace kiss each other, but also that there will be harmony between the earth and the sky above, between heaven and earth. Isn't this not how our Lord taught us to pray in Matthew? Chapter 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are looking forward to a kingdom on earth where faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky between heaven and earth. And then in verse 12 and 13, yes, the Lord will give what is good and the land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And sort of summarizing those three couplets, he will give what is good and the land will give its increase. Um, That's the play on words here. The Lord will give what is good. The land will yield, same word, will give its increase. And in the kingdom that our Messiah sets up, and we'll look at this in the ABF time in in, um, Ezekiel 36, coupled with the promises of the new heart and the cleansed spirit is the land we made like the Garden of Eden. And finally in verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And here are your blanks. He will accomplish this in righteousness and we must follow in it. The Lord God will do this in righteousness and in so doing leave a path or a way. And so God will bring peace between heaven and earth. God will make righteousness and peace kiss. God will make steadfast love and faithfulness meet. And as he does that and as his feet lead this path, we follow in it. We don't make for ourselves a salvation. We trust and follow behind in the salvation that he has made. And we can do this even as forgiven people who cry out, restore us again, remove your anger again, show us your salvation again. And from that vantage point, we can celebrate and celebrate and prize and treasure and delight in the beauty of God's promises. He has done these things. He will do these things. And now as we prepare for communion, we will celebrate his past saving acts, even as we promise and declare his coming. Let's pray. Lord God, Um, you have saved us and you continue to deliver us and restore us. You you have forgiven us and you promise to restore us again and again. We come again and again to the Lord Jesus for for sustenance, for strength. Uh, We feed upon him and, and he gives us food and nourishment for the soul. And until you come and return, we would proclaim his death. In Jesus' name, amen.